He was Mexico's chief negotiator for NAFTA and the USMCA trade deals. Kenneth Smith Ramos was one of the speakers at this week's USMEF Spring Conference, and he sat down with me after his presentation to talk about a number of topics, including specialty crops and trade deals, and how U.S. immigration discussions can affect trade relations. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Here is this week's Agnet Weekly. All right, let's talk about the USMCA. Um, I did see most of your presentation um, a few minutes ago here at the USMEF Spring Conference, and you had quite a bit to say. Um, there were several points that I thought were very interesting that I would like to talk a little bit more about. Can we talk a little? Can we start off with some big topics like GMOs and Mexico's uh, regulations on GMO, GMO corn, for example? That has been a problem for. Um, for the United States and some of our trade because of the United States using some GMO corn and the and Mexico not accepting it. What are some key points on that? Well, uh, it's important to understand that Mexico has been consuming, importing and consuming GMO products for almost 30 years now. And uh, we depend heavily on uh, imports of U.S. corn into Mexico. We import about 17 million tons per year, which is essential for the livestock sector, for agro-industrial processes and for human consumption. Mm -hmm. And so uh, at no point during these three decades of consuming GMO corn have there been any uh, evidence of uh, damage to the environment or harm to human health. Now in this administration in Mexico, there's, there has been by certain areas of, of the cabinet a push against agricultural biotechnology. And that has manifested itself in a decree that was published in, uh, at the end of 2020, where the Mexican government looked to restrict imports of U.S. corn into Mexico and to essentially, uh, quote unquote, do away with GM products in the Mexican citizen's diet. This, of course, uh, created a stir in the U.S. government in Canada as well because they're concerned in Canada, even though they don't export uh, corn into Mexico, they export about a billion dollars worth of canola. And Mexico also uh, utilizes uh, GM soybeans, cottonseed, and many other products as well. So uh, the U.S. and Canada ask Mexico for consultations under the USMCA, which means you open up a period of dialogue to try to resolve uh, particular concerns. And then if that doesn't get resolved, you go to litigation. So as a result of these uh, discussions, Mexico issued a new decree at the beginning of this year, where it essentially says uh, that it won't establish restrictions on imports for corn from the US and it will allow it to be used for livestock production or, or industrial processes, but that it will maintain restrictions in the use of it for flour and tortilla manufacturing, which you know is a key element of the Mexican diet. This is a big issue for the U.S. because in order to establish any restrictions on trade, on uh, sanitary grounds, you need scientific evidence. Right. So the U.S. is essentially saying, why would you restrict a certain portion of your market uh, when you do not have any evidence that it causes harm to human health. And as you know, this is a controversial element uh, issue worldwide. You know, the Europeans have a different approach to GMOs than, than, than North America. And so for the U.S., it would be a very negative precedent for the number one trading partner to question the health effects of uh, consuming agricultural biotechnology products. So this situation is, is at a bit of an impasse. There's a possibility that the U.S. could request a panel on their dispute settlement of the USMCA, and if that is the case, I think there are a lot of elements there that could uh, perhaps yield uh, a positive decision in favor of the United States. So I think Mexico is trying right now to avoid 
a fight with the United States. They realized that it, uh, restricting imports of corn would be shooting ourselves in the foot in Mexico because it would hurt food security, it would hurt producers and, and consumers in Mexico. So they are proposing to the U.S. Uh, essentially in these consultations or trying to guarantee that Mexico will not place any restrictions on, uh, on GMO trade. But the U.S. continues to say, well, just do away with the decree. So it's, there's a tug of war going on there. Uh, I think it's unlikely to be resolved anytime soon. The U.S. will have to decide whether uh, they go and ask for a panel. And it's a difficult time because both countries are going into electoral cycles, and there's a lot of pressures, both in the U.S., the agricultural community is saying you need to enforce the USMCA provisions with Mexico. And in Mexico, the president is trying to satisfy the demands of the more sort of radical wing of his party that are demanding, you know, closing GMO products. So hopefully this will not get out of hand. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about something that, um, if you spoke about it, I was not in the room at the time. And even though we are here at the, uh, talk, you know, at the Meat Export Federation, this has nothing to do with meat exports. Um, but I want to talk to you about specialty crops and uh, seasonal perishable. That mm -hmm. um, has been an issue for our growers with um, some of the provisions in the USMCA um, because produce from Mexico is able to come into the U.S. and flood some markets. Um, during times when, um, you know, it's it's cheaper from Mexico rather than from our domestic growers, and so there is a push from specialty crop growers, fruit and vegetable growers, to make some you know other agreements so to protect U.S. growers. Is there anything that could have been worked out better in that, and and what can happen now? Well, the discussion in the USMCA around seasonality was was a difficult one mm -hmm. because from the Mexican perspective, I mean, we are convinced that the gains that Mexican fruit and vegetable exporters have made into the, the US market over the years have been based on investments that they have made on developing new varieties, whether you're talking about tomato or you're talking about berries. It has been the result of their entrepreneurial spirit and their ability to invest in developing the products that the consumer is demanding. It is not based in on unfair trade practices. So the problem is that you know there was an attempt in the negotiation and now we know that there's legislative initiatives out there to sort of change the rules of how you measure these issues on seasonality uh, to assess whether there is dumping or injury to domestic producers, but they are trying to do it in a way that is not acceptable vis-a-vis -vis the trade rules that exist today, either in the USMCA or at the World Trade Organization. Mm -hmm. So Mexico rejected those because essentially what it would do, it would give a blank check to producers in the US to claim very easily that there is unfair trading practices when in fact there aren't. Th that's the Mexican position. And so in reality, what we see in Mexico is that because of the uh, success that tomatoes, avocados, berries, and many other products have had in the U.S., there's, of course, the push in the United States to try to shut down that access. But if it's done in a way that's violating USMCA rules or WTO rules, then eventually this is going to lead to major litigation. And to tell you the truth, you know, at the end of the day, these types of disputes uh, you know, will hurt the consumer. Because one of the big advantages of the USMCA is that you, know, you in the United States have large areas of land with good irrigation that allow you to produce uh, grains, oil seeds, meat products, and those go into Mexico at a competitive price. 
vice versa, Mexico is able to grow vegetables and fruits uh, all year long, and it satisfies the needs, especially of the northern states, whether we're talking about Minnesota and the you know, Midwest, uh, the northern states throughout the entire year. So there are great benefits to consumers of having free trade. And of course, there are rules established in the trade agreements that say, in case there are unfair trading practices, you can you know, call for investigations and the imposition of duties. But these have to be done within the rules. You can't just change the rules in order to uh, use them as protectionist measures. Yeah, all right, thank you for that comment. Um, you had several things on uh, a few during your presentation that were um, irritants, problems within. Mm -hmm. um, can you go over a couple of the keys? Yeah, I think it's very important to look at the uh, trade irritants that are not necessarily in the agricultural sector because they may have implications for the agricultural sectors if they are not resolved. Primarily on the energy sector, uh, the U.S. and Canada claim, I think quite correctly, uh, that Mexico is not complying with its energy commitments as established in the USMCA. The USMCA reflects the constitutional changes that were done in Mexico in 2013 to allow private companies to fully participate in electricity, power generation, operation of uh, gasoline stations, import and export of oil and gas products, and operation of marine terminals. This used to be closed to the private sector prior to 2013, but since it opened, <coughs> it was reflected in the USMCA. But Two years after the entry into effect of the USMCA, what we are seeing is a rolling back of legislation in Mexico to reduce the ability of private companies to participate in these sectors. So the US and Canada, rightly so, asked for consultations that are still ongoing. The US has not been willing to sort of pull the trigger on asking for a panel. But this is a big deal because you know investments that have been made, in, especially in the renewable energy in Mexico, these are you know, large plants, large, uh, you know, wind, uh, uh, wind power plants, um, uh, solar energy plants, where investments can be upwards for a single company of a billion dollars. So the U.S. has claimed that these violations that Mexico is incurring, you know, could amount to almost 15 or 20 billion dollars worth of negative impact for their companies. So if this goes to a panel and the U.S. wins, that means the U.S. could be in a position to impose trade retaliation up to those numbers, to almost $20 billion. And that obviously could affect many of the top export sectors for Mexico. You know, so, so this is an issue that it remains unresolved. We don't know if the U.S., for political reasons, they're trying to avoid a fight with Mexico. They want to make sure that Mexico continues cooperating on immigration and security. So they have been, so far, unwilling to use the enforcement tools that exist in the USMCA. But, you know, once again, it's, we're going into an electoral year in the U.S., and we know that in Congress, Senate Finance Committee, the Ways and Means Committee, is really pr pressuring USTR, saying, why have you not enforced these provisions of the USMCA? If that gets out of hand, what we wouldn't want to see is the U.S. hitting it, uh, Mexico on energy, Mexico imposing barriers in uh, U.S. ag exports, and this escalating to a level that it gets out of control. So I think that one in particular is, is very important, the energy dispute. Yeah. Uh, you know, overall, Comparing um, NAFTA to USMCA, there are you know, quite a few differences. Do you think it was a big improvement, the USMCA? I think so. And if you see where we were when the negotiations started, mm -hmm. essentially the U.S. saying this is the worst trade agreement ever, we need to do away with it, mm -hmm. we were able to preserve free trade, which a lot of people may say, well, that's sort of the status quo of what we had before. But the position by the U.S. government was we need to reduce the deficit with Mexico, and their initial proposal basically stated 
we need to restrict uh, trade, have voluntary export restraints on automotives, uh, automotive goods, basically cars and auto parts. We need to go back to a ma system of managed trade in agriculture, in textiles, and many other products. We were able to do away with that. So preserving free trade, I think, is a big win, which wasn't obvious at the beginning of, of the negotiation, and also the modernization aspects. I mean, NAFTA is, was very successful, but it was an agreement that was 25 years old back when we started negotiating right. this in, in 2017. So a lot of disciplines like digital trade, you know, how should uh, state-owned enterprises behave, in, you know, when they're competing in sectors with the private sector, good regulatory practices, uh, trade facilitation at the border, utilizing information technologies instead of, you know, bureaucratic paperwork, and all of those elements in each one of the um, uh, chapters that were modernized. For example, the chapter on intellectual property rights was strengthened. So now, the rules in Mexico. Canada and the U.S. are converging towards one single sort of uh, intellectual property protection regime. And that gives, for example, Mexico a big advantage to attract investment as opposed to China. Because companies that have gone to China, you know that they gain advantages there from lower wages, but they know that there's a lot of uh, intellectual property right violations, trade secrets uh, that are stolen, etc. And having regulatory convergence within North America, so the three countries eventually have the same rules, what that winds up uh, doing is it erases borders between the three countries. And, and you can look at uh, North America as a joint economic block. So I think we're making headway into that direction. I think the review in 2026 of the USMCA provides the countries a strong opportunity con to continue strengthening it and to add elements that we were not able to get done during the USMCA negotiations, mainly for political reasons. So having North America as that joint economic block, um, obviously there is strength in that, but what are some of the benefits of that? Well, for example, the uh, leaders of North America have launched an initiative to create the capacity in North America to attract investment in sectors of the future. For example, lithium batteries, semiconductors, medical equipment that's high technology. And what is the purpose of all this? Is to stop depending heavily on imports of inputs from Asia, right? There's a big, uh, you know, trade wars, you know, between the U.S. and China, but it goes beyond the trade war. It's, it's, it's really a, a new type of Cold War, you know, technological race to see who's going to have the supremacy in telecommunications, all of the information technologies, energy, military capacities. So I think we're going through an important geopolitical moment in North America where the U.S. and Canada, I think for the first time since the NAFTA entered into effect, realize that bringing in Mexico into the fold and competing jointly is going to help the region attract investment away from other regions and to be able to com compete effectively. What's the goal of this at the end of the day, and I think that's what Mexico should really pursue, is that it creates economic opportunity. And by bringing investment into Mexico, which mostly, uh, you know, it takes advantage of the domestic market, but it's also for export, mm -hmm. there's an interesting statistic. Uh, salaries in Mexico, in areas, companies, and sectors that export are on average 40% higher than the salaries in the rest of the economy, the economy that does not export. So as you grow the trade pie, if you, if you grow your exports, you're actually helping the population to increase their income. And that should be the final goal of all this economic integration. Yeah. You know, with how everything in politics is so intertwined, the, um, the, the call for more stricter immigration here in the U.S., um, speci specifically, specifically at the southern border, um, and, uh, you know, all of the 
I don't want to say noise, but you know, all of the focus that there's been on that, and some of it's been, you know, frankly, unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Do those kind of things have an effect on uh, our trade relations? Yeah, they could. I think. I mean, you have to look at the U.S.-Mexico relationship as a very large, important relationship that even goes beyond trade. So, cooperation on key issues such as immigration drug trafficking, arms trafficking going from the U.S. into Mexico, all of these issues need to be seen uh, as a package that needs to be resolved through cooperation. That's the only way to do it. I think on immigration, I mean, it's a difficult, we know, political debate in the United States. Uh, there, I would say there's, in public opinion, there's a general consensus that there is an immigration problem quote-unquote in the United States, but it's, it's hard to define what kind of problem that is because when you look at it from the economic perspective, there's many professions in the U.S. where you don't have enough workers. You don't have enough U.S. workers in agriculture. You don't have enough uh, drivers, truck drivers, for example. You don't have enough nurses. So to be able to look at the immigration debate more than just from the undocumented you know, border crossings Ill illegally, as they call them in the United States, uh, you know, it's, it's not the full picture. That's why in the USMCA, for example, Mexico attempted in the negotiation to uh, uh, strengthen the provisions on labor mobility for professionals and for sp uh, specialized trades. You know, so uh, uh, that's, that's an area that at the time we were not able to advance because the U.S. government uh, perceived this as being too close to the immigration debate. Mm -hmm. So that didn't make any headway. We essentially have the same provisions that we had in the NAFTA. And the reality is, if you look at how Europe has integrated its market, one of the key pillars has been labor mobility. Right? So we need to find a balance between, of course, dealing with the immediate crisis, which is you're, ha you're having uh, about a million immigrants uh, you know, massed at the Mexico-U.S. border. How do you handle them? How do you house them? How do you feed them? Mexico is considering providing, for example, a temporary work visas for those who are, have special skills you know, so that they can stay in Mexico. But this is generating a reaction in Mexico saying, wait a minute, we have an unemployment problem ourselves in Mexico, now you're going to hire you know, doctors or engineers from Venezuela or from Cuba, what is going on? So these are always difficult political questions that need to be addressed. I think the solution is cooperation between both countries and really considering from the economic perspective how you modify and amplify the labor mobility provisions so that, for example, Mexican nurses at the border can cross, have a permit to work in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and in other areas of the country as well. And that can be done temporarily. You can have a system that allows for those jobs that are needed in the U.S. and that nobody else is filling in the U.S. to be able to complement that with, uh, with Mexican workers and vice versa. In fact, in some of the factories in Mexico, this is interesting, we always think of it as being a, a south to north problem. But in Mexico, we have a situation where uh, there's uh, so much investment coming into the northern states that the factories are not ha getting enough workers. So, and, and what are some of the requirements? You, you need to have certain skills uh, uh, you know, for manufacturing, but English is a plus. So why not think of a situation where the border states could actually have people coming from the U.S. into Mexico to work in some of these factories. So mm -hmm. these are sort of out-of-the-box ideas that I think we need to implement. Otherwise, we're going to keep spinning our wheels for a long time on the immigration debate. Right, right. And, and uh, as you said, that um, labor issue is a huge problem. You know, we've been having this discussion on H-2A labor mm -hmm. for agricultural labor here for years um, without anything completely resolved as of yet, so it's going to remain an issue. Do you think that we'll see some 
positive work on that in the very near future? Well, I think in the USMCA, we made some progress by, for example, in the labor chapter, yep. that, that became a stronger chapter. It used to be a side agreement, kind of like a right. second class citizen to right. the NAFTA, but now it's the forefront. It's, a, it's an independent chapter subject to dispute settlement. And some of the provisions there that were established, for example, involve uh, protecting migrant workers. So migrant workers that are in the U.S. or in Canada, from Mexico, for example, because we have a, a large number of Mexican migrants that work in, in the fields in the United States, uh, their rights, their labor rights will be respected, even if they're undocumented workers. And this is important because either in the, in the sugar sector or tomatoes or, or strawberry uh, production in the U.S., there have been documented cases where you know there's a different level of treatment for migrant workers than, than U.S. workers. So that was a big priority for Mexico in the negotiation, and it was established in the USMCA. So I, I do believe that at the end of the day, it's a combination of protecting labor rights on both sides. You know, there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed in Mexico, such as child labor, etc., in, in in the sector. Uh, I think we've made a lot of progress over the last 10, 15 years, but more needs to be done. And at the end of the day, it's a combination of combining uh, labor rights protection with the possibility of expanding visas so that people don't have to come in illegally. They know that there are systems or mechanisms that allow them to come temporarily when, when, when the work is required and to go back to Mexico. And so bringing that into a formal sphere makes much more sense than just closing your eyes and pretending that the issue is not there. Yeah. Well, you've let me ask you a bunch of questions that had just nothing to do with your presentation here at the USMEF conference, and I appreciate that. These are questions that are very important to my listeners because I report primarily in specialty crop states. Sure. Um, so labor and then the seasonal perishable mm -hmm. key issues for us. Um, but are there any other issues that you would like to discuss or anything else you'd like for our listeners to know? Well, I think it's very important to realize that uh, what we have built over 30 years, pretty much, of, of free trade between our countries is something that strengthens uh, food security in the region. I think that's that's something that uh, you know will resonate with our leaders, especially now there's going to be a lot of turbulence in terms of the U.S.-Mexico uh, messaging, I would say, in the electoral season. You know, people in Mexico, the candidates will, you know, as we, s we have an expression in Mexico, wrapping yourself in the flag means getting all nationalistic about our relationship with the U.S. Uh, uh, during uh, presidential election campaigns. Same in the United States. You know, there's a concern that uh, candidates will use Mexico as a piñata once again, as it happened with President Trump. And, and pointing to Mexico and saying, I, I am going to fix this, I'm going to build a wall, etc. We're concerned that those debates will come back to the forefront. So in order to deal with that, I think the message that all productive sectors, especially in agriculture, need to send to our leaders is, uh, you know, free trade is not the question of just some companies trying to make a lot of money by selling goods across the border. It's actually, you know, helping uh, the flow of food, you know, whether it's uh, for primary agricultural production or agribusiness processed foods, it actually increases the ability of our population to have guaranteed food supplies, which right now in the international environment, it's, it's a difficult situation, you know. So international free trade in ag is going to help us reduce food prices and is going to help us guarantee food supplies. So maybe that can seep into the political debates during the campaigns on both sides of the border so that people don't take drastic actions or start promoting uh, protectionist practices in agriculture. Yeah, all right. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you once again to Kenneth Smith-Ramos. That's this week's Agnet Weekly. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thanks for tuning in.